The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about that lovely topic, working 24-7. Now, all of us, it seems, we're all well aware that you're expected to be available every minute of every day to respond to somebody's needs, whether it's a manager, a team member, a client, a project group, something. And those lovely, wonderful technology devices, as fabulous as they are and as freeing as they are, just expand the need. So those expectations add stress on what I'm finding is already an incredibly demanding workload at any rate. And then if you had one small change, like a new boss or a system change, then the ability to cope really goes out the window. We end up with no time to adjust to the change, no time to recover, and no time to renew. So today I want to focus on first, what do we know about what creates peak human performance and what should we actually be aiming for? How much of this is realistic for us as human beings? And then I want to focus very specifically on what you can do to cope with the demands. And most importantly, we're going to be looking at some research behind this and what it's currently telling me, telling all of us. So with me today is Katie Bevan. Katie is currently Managing Director at UBS in the Investment Bank. Her job there is focused on culture change, engagement, and driving the diversity and inclusion in agenda. Now, Katie has over 35 years as an organizational change professional. She's done this in the consulting side and internal corporate roles, not just in financial services in a number of industries. She's trained as an executive coach and facilitator, and she's written widely about the challenges of CEOs and senior leaders in taking on new roles. More importantly for today, Katie is completing her PhD studies, and some of her primary research is on this topic of human performance. A number of degrees from Cambridge and London universities, and it can go on from there. And Katie lives on both sides of the Atlantic, or has lived and worked on both sides of the Atlantic, a dual UK-US citizen. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. I'm very pleased to be on your show. I'm really looking forward to this one. I know we all struggle with this 24-7 thing. Um, So I want to start with what do you think is driving these expectations? And let me be more specific about this. Are we doing this to ourselves because we think we have to be uber responsive to our organizations? Or do you think organizations are really expecting that level of sustained engagement for 24-7? Great, Wanda. So, So thank you. I would say that, first of all, we can see it as this is something that is happening in culture broadly, 
we're living in a in a century where we're speeding up and we're doing things in ever smaller uh, tranches of time. So that's the back cloth, I think, to it. Do we do it to ourselves? Do organizations do it to us? I think it's both. And alas, it becomes mutually reinforcing. I think what we've seen with technology, particularly with smartphones and Blackberries, that those erode our boundaries. And so we're picking them up. We're being on them uh, 24-7 at weekends, during the evening, sometimes during the night even. And the our boundaries um, get eroded in that way, and it becomes the norm. Somehow we all have to be sort of heroic workers who are 24-7 available. So I think it is both um, companies expecting it of us, devices, and then our own kind of willingness to go with that. Yeah. I think for a lot of the clients that I deal with, there's a genuine fear that if I don't respond immediately to every text, email, phone call that comes to me, mostly text and email these days, then I'm going to be seen as less than ideal worker. And that just hurts. Um, And I also find that some managers, you know, if they haven't, or other people, if I haven't heard from you in five minutes, I'm going to be pinging you. Where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you responding? And that adds the pressure. Absolutely. Absolutely adds to the pressure. And I think then it becomes a sort of downward spiral. We're all sort of working more and more in this way. So it does take courage, courage for us as employees, courage from us as managers and leaders to say, Let's put a few boundaries around that. The other point is when we're responding immediately, we can be in danger of doing that sometimes very reactively. And so there can actually be value in stepping back and pausing before we respond. Now, that is a novel idea in today's environment, to think that you would stop and think before you respond. I can see absolutely In fact, we've done shows on this one, and I see it in my leadership coaching and development work. When people take time to pause and think and reflect, they actually become better leaders. But boy, does that fly in the face of that immediate, immediate, immediate. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So challenge. let's turn to some of your primary research. And I want to talk just briefly. I know there's a lot to review, and I don't want to cover all of it. But what is the research currently telling us about what really is the best for performance, getting the best performance out of the time that we have to offer? What do you learn? Yeah, I'd like to point to sort of three bodies of research, and I think that they're all interesting. So the first uh, work, um, and I think Tony Schwartz's work from the Energy Project uh, is something that's easily accessible that, that comes from this source, is about the fact that we work best as human beings in 90-minute intervals. So we can concentrate for 90 minutes, but then we need a break, otherwise our performance starts to go down. And that we should actually view the workday as a series of sprints um, rather than as a marathon where we try and work at this peak intensity all of the time. So I think that's, that's one place to look. I think there's also some very interesting research, primarily done uh, with young doctors and medical students, um, but applicable also to the workplace more broadly, is that 
performance drops in a work week as soon as we go over 80 hours. There seems to be a threshold around that and we start making poor decisions when we get fatigued by the simple weight of, of work hours in the week. And then the third body, and you can barely open the newspaper uh, or look online every day without seeing um, stories on this topic. Uh, and this largely began to come from studies done uh, with how do we really drive peak performance in sport is the criticality of sleep and good nutrition to peak performance. Yeah. And the research that I have been reading about the sleep says that uh, trying to reduce what your body needs is a foolhardy task and that most of us need seven to eight hours of sleep. Is that what you have been reading as Absolutely. well? Absolutely. That's what I've encountered too. It's the sort of, you know, I grew up in the UK in the sort of Margaret Thatcher era and we all, she was kind of uh, noted for only needing five hours sleep a night. Well, it, it turns out that that's not really true. We We do need seven, eight hours of good sleep a night and that we can't um, store up a deficit during the week and hopefully sort of um, uh, repair it by sleeping in on a Sunday morning. That doesn't have the same effect on us physically. Yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, tons of research that's sort of backing that one off at this particular moment. Okay. So 90 minute intervals and then a break or otherwise work declines. Um, that reminds me of the whole issue around interruptions. So the Stanford studies around how long it takes you to get back to your thinking position, back to the same place you were before you were interrupted, 23 minutes is what the Stanford work is saying. Absolutely. I mean, it turns out um, that this multitasking idea, you know, we were being sort of encouraged to feel um, full of pride about our abilities to multitask, it turns out that that's not true and that interruptions actually have a, or trying to do too many tasks at once, have a very negative impact. So that we should try and aim for is focusing on one thing at a time and getting it done. Okay. I love this. It's so easily said and so hard to do. So 90-minute burst, 90-minute sprints, take a break. Uh Um, no more than 80 hours a week or else we're going to make really poor decisions. One thing at a time, get it done, then move to the next one. Great sleep, seven to eight hours, and strong nutrition. Okay, there's a formula for success. All right, so I want to shift topics for a minute just before we take a break. And a topic I know you care a lot about, this whole idea of the second shift. What do you mean by that and why is it so important? So the second shift, it was a coin termed by studies done by a sociologist called Arlie Hofschild, who started her work in the 1980s, really looking at the division of work between men and women um, in, the, in the home. So the second shift really refers to what's called unpaid work. So it's the work that starts when we come through our front door or apartment door of an evening. Now, what's interesting about that um, is that the studies show, and here I'm quoting World Economic Forum study, Gender Gap Report 2016, so absolutely current, that if we just look at OECD countries, women actually do more than twice the amount of second shift work that men do. So women in OECD countries, 271 minutes, so roughly, I suppose, about four and a half hours a day, 
and men 137 minutes. So you can see a big gap between that. Now, the implications of that are obviously important when it comes to the success of, of women in the workplace because there's the added both stress and fatigue of that extra work from the second shift. Now, obviously, men can be in that situation too. I work with some single-parent men who are in that position or some men whose wives are in high-powered roles and do more of the work at home. But essentially, it's about that division of unpaid work and the stresses and fatigue that come from doing that. So what do we do to cope with this, either as men supporting women, as men in our own right, or as women? So I think there's three things um, I think about in in terms of what can we do here. One is being conscious of that split. So if you're in a relationship, uh, what is the split of that second shift work between the two of you, if you're both working, and how equitable is that, and, and do we need to make some shifts in it? So I think being conscious of that is a first step. I think that the second step is, and obviously this is somewhat income dependent, but thinking about what things can be outsourced. Certainly in my husband's and and my case, when we had three children in the home uh, and pets to care for as well, getting some clarity around what can we outsource. And then obviously you need to be able to manage guilt. I think as women in particular, we feel guilt about these things. My husband felt much less than I did, but outsourcing where that is an option. And then thirdly, I think it's, it's thinking about how are we raising our kids. What they've found um, in the World Economic Forum studies over the years, too, is that this is a phenomenon that starts quite early. So the divisions between the unpaid work start with actually girls and boys in the home. So what can we do as we raise children to create more parity, I think, in, in the expectation around second shift working? Okay, we're going to take a break, Katie. With me today is Katie Bevan. Katie is Managing Director at UBS Investment Bank, focused on culture change, engagement, and driving the diversity and inclusion agenda. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. 
Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. We've been talking with Katie Bevan. We had a little bit of a cutout just a minute there from my side. But anyway, Katie is Managing Director at UBS and the Investment Bank. Her job is focused on cultural change, engagement, and driving the diversity and inclusion agenda. We were just talking about Katie's primary research in her dissertation topic around peak human performance. And I just want to repeat three things here. What we know from research is that we work best in 90-minute intervals, a sprint, and then take a break. Otherwise, our work declines. Second, we know that if you work over 80 hours, you're starting to make really poor decisions. Third, multitasking doesn't work, so one thing at a time and focus. And then fourth, getting sleep, seven to eight hours of good sleep and really good nutrition make a difference and you can't make up the deficit. Now, we are also talking about another compounding factor of this 24-7, which is the second shift, the work that gets done once you come in the door at home in the evening. Current data from 2016 World Cup Economic Forum are still saying that women are doing four and a half hours a day where men are doing much less. A lot, but still much less. Three things to do about that. One is to be conscious of the split between you and your partner. Make sure it's equitable. Two is outsource what you can. And three is let's focus on how we're raising our kids at this moment in time. So, all right, that's the backdrop for all the challenges of 24-7. Katie, I want to turn and talk about what were the strategies. So what are you seeing at UBS in your work, in practice of people that you've observed that's making a difference in navigating this 24-7 demand? Great. So I think there's some things to feel really uh, encouraged about here, but some of them are challenges. So I think number one is setting boundaries. So being able to have the strength of mind to say, I'm not sleeping with my smartphone. Um, I am leaving it downstairs. I am going to focus on this family dinner, on this dinner with my partner, and not be continually checking my email or text messages. So I think Boundaries is really um, important, and obviously, the more in, in organizations we can create that as the culture that it's acceptable to have these periods of time when we we are do have this time time off, time away. That's really important. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two, I think there there are some structural things that can be. Done, and, and we've been experimenting with this in UBS. We've, we've launched last year an initiative that's really taken off, which is about a team of practice. So this is where teams say, between us, we're going to understand what different people need with the commitment that we're going to try to give 
each of us the ability to have two hours during the work week where we can have that to do something personal. So I work with a lot of people uh, who are in capital markets, so they're coming in at 6.30 in the morning before the markets, financial markets open, and they literally are almost at their desk. It's very difficult to move away if you're in sales or trading until the markets close um, at the end of the afternoon. So the ability to um, have someone else cover your book, as it's called, of work, and have those two hours, whether it's coming in late to take a child to school, whether it's about taking two hours to practice for a sport. We've got some really great examples of people doing that or to take a yoga class. It's been really successful, but it's dependent upon the team really working together to pull that off as a team practice. Okay. Let's talk, I want to pause and talk about this one because I have been quite impressed with this idea. Can you give us a little more details on how the teams make it work? I mean, is this mandated from the organization or is it up to the team to drive it? And how do they functionally go about making it happen? I think it's been successful because it's, it's not to do with policies. It's not mandated from the top. It very much has been um, supported and driven by senior sponsors um, with the idea to make it very okay. But the teams basically sign up themselves. So as a group of work colleagues, they say, we, we're going to get together and practice this. Then typically, they will take a time in the week Many of uh, our sales and trading teams do this on a Monday morning, and they say, who's going to need what this week? And they sort it out between them. So that may take five or ten minutes, and then it's set for the week, and they have this agreed way of, of who's coming in when, who's going off to do what. Now, obviously, if, if some things uh, get in the way, we might have some big deals come along, some big trades, then it may not be possible. So the teams know that and they're very flexible. It's not an individual entitlement, but it is about sort of agreeing week to week that flexibility. Okay. And are you finding managers are supportive of this or are they kind of going along? Uh, No, I think they've really been supportive where they see actually that it's led to an increase in productivity and certainly an engagement on the desks. Um, it's very much helpful when it's driven from the top and go, flows down through the organization. Um, of course, there's been some resistors, but increasingly as it becomes the norm, that helps deal with those resistors. And then in many of our town halls, um, the businesses have been publicizing some of these stories, which emotionally are quite gripping. I mean, um, one of the traders in South Africa wrote an article around feeling unchained from the desk. And the difference it made to take his child to school each week stopped him feeling like a phantom father. And so I think connecting with people emotionally that what might appear a small uh, change, two hours, can actually have a really significant impact in somebody's life. Okay. All right. I love that one. And it's something that any manager could implement uh, within their own world without necessarily having to have huge approval from the top in most cases. Are you seeing any other structural activities that are making a difference in people's ability to cope? Yes. I think what's called predictable time off. There was some really um, stellar work done um, by a Harvard business professor, Leslie Perlow, in the Boston Consulting Group, where she was working with teams there. And, and I think most of your listeners will know uh, these consulting businesses, the consultants are out in the field all week very often working very long hours. 
they, they conceived of an idea of predictable time off. So even if you were on the road, getting an evening where you were free, non-contactable by phone or email, made a huge difference to people. And so I think predictable time off and making sure, again, it has to be done probably within a team that people get that known window of opportunity where they're uncontactable, um, really important. In a different, uh, 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 I guess, sector, again, going back to medicine, what's really worked in hospitals is making sure people know the weekends when they're going to be free. So for junior doctors, they have a concept called gold weekends. And on gold weekends, you know that you're not going in. You're not going in part of the time. You're not going in all of the time. That's a free weekend. It might only come back around once a month but you know that that's predictably your time off. So I think that's a huge one structurally that we can work on more in organizations. I um, remember a few years ago interviewing some very young or junior em- uh, employees, and this was also on investment banks. And one of the frustrations they felt about staying with the business and being in the financial services for the rest of their career was this notion that you never knew if you could keep a family dinner, if your parents were in town for the weekend and you made a commitment to go out with them, whether you would actually be able to be there or not. And it was just that unpredictability that wreaked havoc in people's personal lives. And as you can imagine with their relationships, you know, you you got a big event planned with your partner and you don't know if you're going to make it or not. One time that's good. Three times, not so good. So that notion of the predictable time off means I know I have it coming and I can take a real break at that point in time. Okay. Um, I seem to remember that a year or so ago, there were some promises to younger um, employees, millennials coming into the workplace, uh, especially in investment banks, about being able to have a weekend off once every two months. Have you guys gone down that route as well? No, we haven't gone down it officially uh, in the same way some of the other banks have. But what we are doing is really monitoring it team by team. So we're holding these uh, managing directors accountable for ensuring that their junior bankers do get the time off, do get the time down, and can keep commitments with their family. And of course, you know, we're a competitive lot in investment banking. When your performance as a manager is being measured against other managers and we're getting direct feedback, little surveys are done uh, each month, this makes a tremendous difference. You don't want to be the manager at the bottom of the heap. So we're doing it much more through, I think, encouragement and good practices and, and comparing managers than trying to implement a policy from the top. Okay. And if that also translates then to increased productivity or increased engagement, there's a bigger incentive as well, not just the monitoring one. I don't want this all to sound financial services driven because I'm certainly seeing the same in any number of other clients. Okay. um, Now, we talked about setting boundaries as one of the first things. And I want to go back to that one in just a minute because everybody I deal with feels like they can't say no or they don't know how to say no. And you said already, it takes a lot of courage, courage from the individual and courage from the organization. Any specific advice or tactics you've seen for helping to say no or set boundaries so you do get a good night's sleep or a dinner that's uninterrupted? So uh, we touched 
touched on this before. I think starting small, we all know it's hard to change our behavior. But if you just say, Friday night, I'm going to not look at my email or text messages, or for the course of Sunday during the day, maybe I'll look as I head into Monday morning, so I may re-engage Sunday evening. But try by setting a start, you know, a small experiment with yourself of something that feels manageable. So it's not, I'm, I'm never going to look at my uh, texts or emails in the evening again, um, but start with something as an experiment that seems really achievable. I've seen that really work. And then when you find, oh, you know, it was perfectly fine, it wasn't a problem, um, that, that then can build from there. So I think starting small, starting with something that can be achievable, and then again, if one can engage with other colleagues, whether it's peers, whether it's people on your team, so that you've got that support around you to do it, that's extremely helpful to getting these shifts. Okay, I like that one. This notion of I don't have to just go off and do it quietly. I actually can say with other colleagues, let's make a pack that we're going to do this together. Or how did that work even? Was it a problem? And the notion of small experiments. So you get some confidence that it will work out okay. All right, I want to turn, have you seen any other solutions that individual leaders have adopted that you think has helped them manage the demands of 24-7? Yes, I have seen a few. Um, so I've seen commitments. And I think pretty much we we across, I, I sit in the uh, president's office within the investment bank, we try and do this, not wholly successful all of the time, but trying to limit the number of weekend emails, really think about it before I send one, think about it before I answer one. So that's been pretty successful. And I think it, it's something that other leaders can adopt. Um, just because the rest of your culture is doing it, you could, again, try and make a bit of a beachhead within your own team. So limited or no weekend emails. I think I've seen quite successfully, this was in a previous company I was working in, but a senior leader say no internal meetings on Fridays. Fine if there's client meetings, but we're going to try and make Fridays a day where we focus on doing our individual work, the things we really enjoy, the more strategic things, and, and no meeting, no internal meeting Fridays. I've seen that be very successful. Wow, lovely idea. And okay. at a more personal level, we have a uh, very senior leader, global leader, co-leader of our corporate banking uh, business who's a, a woman. She raised four kids. One of her practices with her kids, very tough, as you know, wandering in, in our investment banking, uh, corporate banking to do this, but she was committed that each one of those four kids, one day in the month, she would take them individually to school. So four kids, that means one a week. Of course, sometimes if she was traveling for that whole week, she'd have to do two another week. But she absolutely diarized and kept it up as a practice throughout their school years of taking one to school each month individually, or four, I should say, but individually taken to school. That's great. You know, we often think as parents, the school would like us to be um, there every day to hear the report every day. But, you know, even if you just get one a week or one a month, um, then that can also make a huge difference as well. 
I remember um, one senior leader, again, this happened to be a female that I had worked with, who said that she um, promised her kids that she would make one event for them per term. So each of their three kids, one event per term, but that they had to tell her at the start of the term which event it was they wanted her to go to. And she promised to hold her diary, not be traveling, make that event. Now, I'll do the other. She said, I'll do the others as much as I can, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to be at every single one. And for her and her family, that seemed to work out pretty well as well. Yeah, I think it's about making commitments that are realistic, but you have to stick to them. Okay. All right. The, um, one of the other things that you've talked about, Katie, is this whole thing of uh, discipline, of individual discipline. So what's your view on this one? Well, you know, it, it's, it's tricky, right? It's tricky if you feel you live in a culture where everybody is responsive um, all of the time. So one of the things I would say I've, I know have helped me and I see have helped others. One we've touched on already, start with an experiment, small scale, realistic. It builds, like it can build week on week and you can get better at it. Another thing I find that's helped me is having the ability to step back, to pause, as you said earlier, before I respond. And mindfulness techniques, I think, help here a lot. So I know that instead of just, if I can read an email and if I see some emotion in that, I can my own emotion can be yanked and I can respond immediately and then something starts escalating. And email can be terrible for that, particularly, I think, texting or these quick emails we tap out on our Blackberries and iPhones. So being mindful, trying to stay present and not react. I mean, I think as human beings, you know, emotions can come and go. That old adage of just sleep on it is actually really good advice. So that would be another suggestion I would have. Okay. So start with experiments, it builds, and then the ability to pause and the mindfulness. And there's a lot that has been written about on mindfulness, and we've done a number of shows on it as well. Um, any other tactics that you have seen people do that you think is really useful? I don't know. I can't think of any off the top of my head, Wanda. But what have you seen? I mean, you're in different organizations uh, every week. I think my favorite one is a senior leader. And you get some privilege to do this as a senior leader that you don't always get throughout the organization. But this person said, I'm very disciplined about when I read my emails. Because his view was you could come in every day and be extraordinarily busy and never accomplish anything that really mattered. And email was one of those. So he was just very disciplined. And he said, I'm going to read my emails in the 45-minute train ride I have home at the end of the day. That means if you're sending me an email, you better keep it to that kind of readable length. Otherwise, you're not going to get a response. And that then frees up my day to do the stuff I really need to be focused on. Now, every time I tell that story, people go, oh, my gosh, I couldn't do that. And that may be true. But I do think it's an interesting practice to say, can I bound what I'm, what is distracting me from the real work I need to be doing? Can I confine it to a more definite period of time and not just let it bleed all over all the time? 
No, I think that's a wonderful example, and it's reminded me we've got another initiative running that has a huge head of steam up around it, and it's called Ruthless Efficiency. Uh, and it's where one of our managing directors in the research division actually has taken upon himself to run these uh, kind of webinars, which are around how do we manage our email. And it's the essential premise of, of his workshop is, I, if, if I can't answer it um, in under a minute, then I need to do something else with it. And that essentially it's setting up triage. So either am I going to delegate it or else it goes into a folder with a clear action against it around what I'm going to do with that later. So you read it, you say it looks like the next action is going to be bar bar in quick notes, and then you put it into a folder. And then you have a set okay. time in the day where you go back and deal with your triaged email, which will either be deleted, it will have an action against it, you might have delegated it, or you have done a quick reply. And the idea is you keep on triaging your emails so that you're always getting it down to zero. And uh, it's been fantastically successful. Uh, we're going to be uh, doing this with, with all our directors and below, so about half our population, um, in a series of big workshops uh, coming up uh, this year but I think very, very helpful to getting on top of our email rather than finding that it's on top of us. Yeah. We used to say when we dealt with paper files that you should only touch a piece of paper once, that you do something with it or you file it. That's it. And in some ways, that's what you're talking about with email. I make sure that if it's an under-a-minute action, I can do it and we're done or else I'm going to put it in a file that says I'll deal with this at a specific point in time today and delegate it or take an action on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Harder said than done. And the other thing is turn off those alerts because they're <laughs> a distraction. It goes back to the multitasking again. If I'm in the middle of concentrating on something and then bip, the, this email comes up. Bip, another email comes up. So simply turn those off. Okay. I think those are really, really helpful. The last tactic that I have heard, um, in fact, it was a radio show guest, Neen James, uh, about a year and a half ago, who said that her tactic for dealing with email is to confine it to 15 minutes, the quarter to the hour, so that she would work on a task for 45 minutes. This is back to the sprint idea. The 45 minutes concentrating on task, her timer goes off. And then she looks at her email for 15 minutes, and then that forces her to do a better triage technique with the email for the 15 minutes. Timer goes off, and she's back to the task again. Um, and I always thought that was an interesting tactic. Even if you can't take the full hour, even if you take the half hour, and I'm just going to deal with the 10 minutes before the half hour is up. Always, I think, to take the courage to put some discipline, to put some boundaries, um, to make sure we get to what we need to to get to. Okay, we're going to take a break, Katie. With me today is Katie Bevan. Katie is Managing Director at UBS Investment Bank, focused on culture change, engagement, and driving the diversity and inclusion agenda. And we've been talking in this segment about some very specific tactics that you can employ as an individual and as a manager within an organization. One of those has to do with setting boundaries. So this notion of taking a small experiment, like one night in a week, where you're not going to sleep with your BlackBerry or your iPhone or whatever other device you have. Just small one thing so that you get some gap. 
And then the second thing we've really talked about is this notion of some structural things that you can do that make it easier. So the team practice where the team commits to let each person in the group have two hours during the week for whatever personal issues might come up um, from kids to training for a marathon or whatever else it might be. A second tactic has to do with having some predictable time off so that we know that there's at least one weekend in a month or one day in a week or one day in a month where I know I can have, I can manage, I can pre-plan things and I'm not going to get interrupted. And then we've talked about a variety of individual techniques where um, you're managing email or trying to not set internal meetings on Friday so that you have time for strategic thinking and individual work. A whole lot of issues that I think take some of the stress off of the 24-7. Okay, so when we come back, we're going to focus about some additional ways of working and more importantly for managers, how do we cope with all the different demands of different ways of working? We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., Helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, welcome back to the show. With me today is Katie Bevan. Katie is Managing Director at UBS in the Investment Bank, responsible for cultural change and engagement, among other things, an executive coach and a facilitator. And Katie is doing her dissertation work for PhD around some of these issues around human performance. So we've been talking about um, what we know about the literature of human performance. And we have been talking about things like the fact that if you work for longer than 90 minutes, your work tends to start declining. And the fact that multitasking is an inefficient way that also hurts performance. We've also been talking about ways to set boundaries. And we've been talking about structural practices that can make a difference in allowing people to get the gaps and the breaks they need to reduce the stress levels and be able to cope 
with the demands of 24-7 work. So, Katie, for this last segment, I want to focus specifically on managers. And what's your advice to managers around how to help teams in the best possible way? So I want to start by saying I think there's huge untapped capacity here in how teams can support each other around this. I mean, I think we've mostly been working with a sort of individual model around performance uh, and the way we manage people sort of one-on-one. But it's helpful to come back to say, here's a team. This is a community that that I, I manage and that we work together and to really better understand what each of us needs in terms of our our work and life demands. I mean, one of the senior leaders I worked with who was sponsoring what we've called this wickedly smart working effort called it putting life first. And so understanding that amongst the team can be incredibly interesting and rewarding and build deeper relationships that have many positive benefits to getting the actual task done. But it can be actually, instead of viewing it person by person, and, and I, the manager, have to be accountable for that. But how can we share this as a team, understand our individual needs as a team, which are going to vary over time and vary by person, and try and accommodate that as best we can? I think huge untapped capacity there. Okay. Um, another worry for some managers is that if I allow you to do one thing, then I can't allow somebody else to do another thing. And they start to worry about the inequitability in the team, where someone feels that they're getting an advantage the others can't get. What's your advice on those cases? So I I absolutely understand that. I mean, the classic, say, is um, a member of the team, often a woman, being allowed, say, flexibility, whether it's to leave early or maybe to work on a Friday from home or this kind of thing. And it sets up a, a have and have not. And I think, again, we want to avoid that by saying everyone can have something. You may not get everything you want. But every one of us is entitled to some accommodation here, but we have to work it out. We know we have to work it out in a way that doesn't take away from our group productivity, but ideally can add to it. But it shouldn't be about you have and you don't have, because I think that does set up negative dynamics. Okay. I really like this idea. It seems to me that this plays well to millennials who are used to thinking about problems as team and shared problems. I think that's a fair summary for millennials. I hope so. Um, but it also takes it out of the manager's hands that I, the manager has to be the one with the answers and instead says collectively as a group, how do we give each of us some of what we need, even if we don't get everything that we need altogether? All right. Um, any other advice? I mean, there's a lot of discussion currently going about flexible ways of working. I don't mean flex time, but allowing people to work from home or different hours or so on. What's your advice to people who are considering the flexible ways of working? Open up the conversation. I mean, unless you open up the conversation, you, 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 you can't gain anything. So um, I think we tend to uh, be worried about these conversations. Um, interestingly, I think a number of the uh, fathers uh, that we work with in the business uh, 
because it's not certainly our investment bank, but I don't think investment banking more broadly has sort of encouraged uh, fathers to take leave. Um, they've needed some encouragement to take parental leave, uh, which it is in the UK and other jurisdictions. It can be known as paternity leave. Um, so I think that that sort of initiative has been really important. So people should be encouraged to ask for it. And then as managers, let's make sure we try and anticipate what's happening. We don't just think about women going on maternity leave, but we enter into those conversations uh, with the dads. I think social times, cultural times are changing as well around the expectations of fathers, um, but to make sure people are doing that. So number one piece of advice is open up that conversation, whether you're the employee or you're the, the manager, and try and make it normal to have these conversations around these topics. Okay, I like that one. Um, Two points of comment on that one, both some of my own research that was done in-house for specific companies, as well as some other research, is saying that fathers in particular, but lots of young men who are not necessarily fathers, if they could have a time off in their careers, especially in the early years, without a penalty for their career progression, they would absolutely 100% take it. That they want some flexibility as much as women do. And we tend to put this on the too much on the feet of women on this one. So that's an interesting comment about it. I think that's Sec- absolutely right. And I think um, where some of these practices have fallen down is because they, they're seen as women's practices. And then they tend to get marginalized. And what we really want around flexible working, sometimes called agile working, is that it's something that men and women embrace and that it's healthy for all of us to do that. Okay. And again, agile working, we're not talking about working less hours in the week necessarily, but we're talking about flexibility in how and when that work is getting done. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The um, one conversation, one of my clients, um, one of the accounting firms is Particular, I think, particularly good on this whole issue. And so anybody, it's become a culture for them that it is perfectly acceptable for anybody to ask for any kind of flexibility, agility that they think they need in their lives, and that the manager is committed to investigate it, which means they may take it to a committee, they may take it to a group of other managers, they may take it to a management team meeting, and that they promise to come back with an honest evaluation of how we think this would or would not work. So it doesn't guarantee that you say yes, or it doesn't guarantee that you say no. It promises that you will adequately evaluate it. Okay. And I just love that phrase that, you know, you can ask and you know that somebody's going to look at it and then come back and say, we can't make that work or we can make this part of it work. So that, again, that opening of the conversation seems to be helping as well. Yeah, and if I can add um, uh, one anecdote around that, I was actually at a agile uh, working practices meeting this week, which was cross industry, and I could really see how some of these professional services firms—you uh, alluded there—wander to an accounting firm. They're really leading the way, and I think that's partly because employing large number of millennials, a um, lot of turnover, so it's in their business interest to try and respond. Um, but another concept I heard there was sacred time. So it had become absolutely culturally the norm to say, um, actually, I can't do a meeting between X and X. That's my sacred time when I do 
X, Y, and Z. So um, I think there's a lot we could look to some of these professional services firms uh, to to learn from around this topic. All right, I like that sacred time so that people block out time that they do specific tasks or thinking time or whatever else it is. Um, one of my long-standing favorite stories is a guy, in, he is in professional services, who used to block out time to do something that he wanted to do. In this case, it happened to be coaching his kids' um, sports teams. Not a huge amount of time, an hour, an hour and a half once or twice a week and he used to block it and he used to just call it client meetings because you'd say it's as much a client meeting as anything. The parents of those kids have indeed become clients or will become clients or could refer me as clients. So, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And um, again, it just was a kind of covert way to protect something as a sacred time for whatever he needed to do. Um, yes, and I think to a degree what what we need is a cultural shift that that's that's a technique, and I've certainly seen that um, done within UBS to block out the time and say private time or personal time or client meetings. But if we can actually get to the point where it's more honest, that's why I really liked this concept yeah. of sacred time. That's got to be better. I agree with you on that one, absolutely, because it doesn't feel very good to be lying about what it is you're doing or faking it. Um, you use the phrase wickedly smart working, and I wonder in the wickedly smart, we've talked about emails, but are you also talking about um, ways to use technology in more creative ways that make agility easier? Yes, there's some different parts to what they've been working on. So we've discussed um, the work and team practices such as take two. We've discussed the sort of email practices, ruthless efficiency. Um, technology is another one of those. And for us, it's to some extent about how do we leverage platforms that are already there. So for our bankers, there are, uh, are ways in which they can comment uh, using their iPads on PDF uh, versions of PowerPoints and quickly do a turnaround for the junior bankers working on them. But they're not all um, sufficiently capable of using that particular program. So I think there's some things we can really do around tech enablement to make sure that we are using either the apps, the programs, the technology itself to be as efficient as we can be. And then the last piece of our, our wickedly smart working um, stream is around sort of wellness and, and health. And we've touched on some of that, but whether it's sleep, whether it's nutrition, whether it's um, uh, trying to do healthy practices like walk up flights of stairs instead of taking lifts or elevators, I think there's a lot more we can do there that will help us be just better performing both at work and at home. Okay, fabulous. All right, Katie, we've got about two minutes before we close, and I know that you want to end in an unusual way with a poem. So over to you. Yes, so I hope it won't put our, your listeners or our listeners today out of their comfort zone. It might do. Uh, but I wanted to share a poem I'd written um, that really I think captures some of the issues that can happen if we're not careful enough around thinking about the issues we've been talking about today. So the poem is called Fearless Girl. You wouldn't notice by looking at me 
that my fine black suede high fashion boots hide a mangled left foot from view. I keep the limb covered, not wanting to scare you unnecessarily. The tops of three of my toes are missing. From time to time, when I rush unthinkingly up, endless moving metal stairs, upwards, quicker, faster, now, I flinch with pain and my stump scars break open. Fresh blood seeps, staining my fine grey stockings, pooling stickily at my soul, later crusting into round, fragile scabs, easily dislodged, edged with spreading circles of infecting redness. It happened in Hong Kong, busy, distracted, elbowing as a true New Yorker through tired white mask commuters, riding up central to mid-levels escalator, intensities of an investment banking workday left far below in a smog-enclosed skyscraper, traversing escalator to escalator to escalator. Jet-lagged, rushing late to a work dinner in a fancy restaurant, Sweating in my light silk dress as I ride oblivious to all others, green cashmere Hermes Pashima in a fine leather yellow fondy bag, purchased from the mall yesterday in sleepless night hours, ignoring my phone's persistent ringing, lost in work thoughts, carried up wearily, refusing separation. Misstepping a top stair, steel teeth devouring pink shiny painted toes, freshly manicured for the trip, and a dainty open-toe sandal is ripped away, bearing my flesh and bone. Okay. Okay. All right, Katie, unfortunately we have to stop there. Okay. I hate to end no without worries. the end of the poem, but thank you for joining us, Katie Bevan, today. And join us next week for John Ott uh, talking about collective wisdom. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.